after the resurrection, Jesus meets up with his disciples on the shore of a lake after they had spent the entire night fishing. They have breakfast together, and then after breakfast, Jesus pulls Peter aside and he says, hey, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, of course, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. Jesus looks at Peter again and says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, of course, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, feed my sheep. Well, then a third time, Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know all things, so you know that I love you. And he says, and then Jesus says, feed my sheep. Now, this is a well-known passage. It's a beautiful passage. And it's a beautiful passage because we, what we see Jesus doing is restoring Peter after Peter had denied Jesus three times just prior to the crucifixion. But the beauty of the passage lies not just in the fact that Peter is restored. It lies in what Peter is restored to do. You see, Jesus tells Peter that if you love me, then feed my sheep. Jesus is equating Peter's love for Jesus with Peter's service to those whom Jesus loves. Peter, if you love me, care for those whom I love. Now, the image of a shepherd is an image that is found all throughout scriptures. And many of Israel's greatest leaders started out as shepherds. Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. Jesus was never a shepherd by vocation, but in John 10, our gospel passage this morning, Jesus applies that name to himself. He says, I am the good shepherd. And the reason he's the good shepherd is because he is a shepherd that gathers in the flock as contrasted to those um, who would scatter the flock. The image of a shepherd is also used for those who are leaders of the church. The idea is that while we wait for our good shepherd to return, Christ has made provision for his church to be cared for in his absence. And he has tasked the shepherds, sometimes we call them pastors or priests or elders or under-shepherds, we've been tasked with this task of caring for Christ's church until he returns. As we noted last week, the Apostle Paul was a man who was diligent in raising up leaders who will continue the work of caring for the church in Christ's absence. However, once leaders are raised up, like any leaders, leaders still need to be guided and even encouraged to continue on in the task that they've been called to do. And last week, we began a series looking at a specific way that Paul does this for pastors. And that specific way is found in a group of letters that we call the pastoral epistles. They're first and second Timothy and Titus. And in those letters, Paul gives these two pastors five trustworthy sayings. He gives them five trustworthy sayings that are found throughout those letters. And these sayings are like nuggets of wisdom or nuggets of truth that that Timothy and Titus and all shepherds of the church can hold on to, and they act as sources of guidance, and they act as sources of correction, and even sources of encouragement as they carry on their task of ministry to the churches. 
Now, we started out by looking at the first of these five trustworthy sayings, and this week we're going to look at the second trustworthy saying. If you weren't here last week, or if you haven't had a chance to to listen to last week's sermon, I invite you to go back on the website, listen to last week's sermon, because in that sermon, I lay a lot of groundwork that I'm going to keep coming back to over the next several weeks. But for today, let let me highlight just one specific thing that I, I mentioned last week. Even though these five trustworthy sayings of Paul are written directly to pastors, the truth of these trustworthy sayings are not just for pastors only, but for the whole church as well. You see, they are sources of encouragement for even us as a church as we live our life together and as we seek to be faithful, living out God's calling for us as a church here in Charlotte. And so last week we started out with the first trustworthy saying, and the first trustworthy saying is found in the first chapter of 1 Timothy in verse 15, and it's that Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's the first trustworthy saying. And I suggested that this particular saying is foundational, not just to Christian life, but to Christian ministry as well. And that's because it's the heart of the gospel itself. Now, that particular saying is, is actually really pretty broad. It's a, it's a broad focus. It has broad implications. Our, our second trustworthy saying today is, is a little different because the focus of our trustworthy saying today is a little bit more focused. It has, uh, its implications are a little bit more narrowly focused than really any of the other trustworthy sayings. So if you have your scripture, let's go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy Chapter 3, we're going to be in verse 1, and we're going to look at the second of these trustworthy sayings. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says this. <coughs> Excuse me. The saying is trustworthy that if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. That's the second trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, He desires a noble task. Then if you read on in the passage like we did just a little bit ago, we're going to see that that Paul lays out all the characteristics that a person must meet in order to qualify for this noble task of being an overseer in the church. What Paul does not do here, however, is he does not lay out the job description. He doesn't tell us, at least in this position, at least in in this passage, what all the position entails. He just kind of makes this blanket statement and assumes that Timothy knows what the task actually is. Now, this morning, I don't want to make the same assumption. I don't want to assume that everybody in this room, that we all understand what the task of an overseer actually is. And by taking that posture, it allows us to ask three questions of this specific verse. The three questions go like this. What is the task of an overseer? What exactly is the task? Two, why is it noble? And three, why is it a trustworthy saying? Why is it important and encouraging for us to know that the task of an overseer is a noble task? So that's our three questions that we're going to ask this morning. So let's dive in. Our very first question is, well, what is the task of an overseer? Maybe to start answering this question, we need to get clear on what the term 
overseer actually means. Now, in Greek, the word that is translated as overseer is this word episkopos. Episkopos. It's where we get our word episcopal, like Episcopalian and, and the Episcopal structure of church hierarchy. Um, it's, I'm not going to bore you with all the etymology, but as it gets translated from Greek to Latin into English, it becomes our word bishop. And so we can rightly translate it as the office of a bishop. Now, there are, is another word that is used in Scripture that denotes leadership in the church, and that term is presbyteros. It's where we get the word presbyter, derived from like Presbyterian. It's also translated as elder. It even gets translated as priest. Now, it's important to note that, that as the church grew and expanded throughout the years, actually pretty quickly, the functions of the church and the function of the church leadership became more defined out of, ne- out of necessity. And these terms became much more defined, and these particular terms became attached to these specific functions. However, we need to remember that at this point in time, when Paul is writing, the church is only a few decades old. The church is only a few decades old, and the, the terms are not as well defined as they later come to be. And so there are places, as we read maybe in 2 Timothy and even in 2 Peter, where even these words, episkopos and, and presbyteros and some other terms, are used interchangeably to denote the same function. Of, but basically what we're talking about is church leadership. At this point, we're talking about church leadership. But Paul here does use this specific term, episkopos, because I think there's a certain connotation that he wants to get at. You see, the term episkopos has this connotation of looking down into something and inspecting it. Not in a judgy way, but this idea of, of inspecting it. It's one of investigation, of searching out what is there and making sure that everything is well-ordered and everything is functioning properly. Now, in our day, sometimes if we hear a definition like that, we think of something like an overseer, or I'm sorry, or something like a supervisor, or an administrator, or even a, a, even a boss. Those aren't entirely bad things, but we need to remember this. The church is not a business. The church is not a special interest group. The church is not even a voluntary association like a social club or whatnot. And we're going to get to the nature of the church in just a second, but suffice it to say that we need to remember that the church are the people of God who are called out, who are bought with the blood of Jesus and are formed by the Holy Spirit into one body. The church is different than any other entity or society or community in the world, and therefore its leadership must be different. So really, if we think of an overseer, the closest scriptural analogy that we have for this type of oversight is really that of a shepherd. It's that of a shepherd. And so to to answer our question, what's the task, maybe we need to ask ourselves, well, what does a shepherd do? Let me suggest that a shepherd does many things, but three main things that it does is this. A shepherd feeds its flock, a shepherd guards its flock, and a shepherd raises its flock. And in the same way, overseers are tasked to feed the church, to guard the church, and to raise the church up. Sometimes we say build the church up. Now, I don't have time to go too deep into each one of these, but let me just highlight something specific about each, each one of these three. 
The task of an overseer, of a leader in the church, is to feed the church. The way that the church is fed is through the preaching and teaching of God's word and through the right administration of the sacraments. You see, over and over, Paul commands Timothy and Titus to make sure that anyone who aspires to the role of an overseer is someone who knows how to teach. An overseer must be someone who knows how to teach and who understands God's word and can communicate it clearly. It's because the word of God is central to the life of the church. Second Timothy, in, in 2 Timothy, Paul says, look, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. And next week, we're going to talk more about training in righteousness. In 2 Peter, Peter encourages the church to long for the pure milk of the word. Long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Long for the pure milk of the word. See, an overseer feeds the church by rightly preaching and teaching the scriptures because in them, Jesus, who is the bread of life, is revealed. And so when the scriptures are not rightly taught and Jesus is not rightly held up, the church starves. However, when the word is correctly taught, and not just from the pulpit, but in Bible studies, in pastorates, downstairs in children's ministry, when the word is rightly taught, it's like a shepherd leading its sheep to green pastures so that they can eat and be nourished and grow to maturity. This was an incredibly important principle for, for the English reformers, especially for Thomas Cramner. You see, Cramner made two specific reforms. One of the first things he ever did was he wrote a book of homilies, which were based in the pure gospel of grace, and he reformed the liturgy so that the liturgy would be permeated with Scripture because he believed that as we keep the pure gospel of grace before our eyes and in our ears, that we would be shown just how much God loves us in Christ, and it's that understanding of God's love for us that turns our hearts towards God, who is our source of life. And so Jesus, who is the bread of life, is found only in Scripture. And the life-giving gospel of salvation is found only in the pure milk of the Word. That is the first task of an overseer. Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. The second task of an overseer is that of guarding the flock. That of guarding the flock. You see, Timothy and Titus are dealing in their, in their day with these false teachers who are coming into their church and teaching all kinds of things that are contrary to sound doctrine and to the Scriptures. They taught things about Christ and salvation and God that were not in line with the Scriptures. And the problem wasn't just that the facts were wrong. The problem was that these false teachings were causing division. They were causing disunity. And not only were they doing that, but these teachings were leading people back into old sinful ways of living and leading them away from Christ. That's why Paul says that false teachers are like wolves because they cause division and disunity and they scatter the flock. Sometimes, it's, sometimes we forget just how important it is to guard ourselves from false teachings. For Paul, it was a matter of life and death. One theologian made this observation. He said, you know, it's, we take such great care when we're trying to find a doctor. 
We take great care when trying to find a doctor because we know that a bad doctor could be very damaging to our health. But we don't always take the same care when trying to find a pastor because we don't always believe that a bad pastor can be just as, if not more, damaging to our spiritual health. And so Paul tasks all overseers to be on guard against false teaching. When, uh, when Fred and I were ordained, part of our ordination vows, we vowed to, to drive away from the church all strange and erroneous doctrines. I, I love that, strange and erroneous doctrines. That's why we can be kind of picky about theological issues, because we made a vow to guard the church against false teaching and against the things that would cause division and the things that would scatter the flock and lead people away from Christ. That's the second part of the task of an overseer. And the third task of an o- part of an overseer is this. The third task is to build up the church. Right? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, he says that Christ gave shepherds to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, too often, we use this word ministry to describe only what the pastor does. But in reality, our pastoral ministry is to equip you for ministry. Overseers perform their task, their task well when the members of the church are taught, are resourced, are raised up, and released to go and proclaim the gospel, to go and help the poor, to go and comfort those who are hurting and strengthen those who are weak, to love one another and bring the love of Christ to those whom Christ loves. See, the church is on mission with Christ, and the task of an overseer is to make sure that that mission is strengthened and that we stay focused on that mission. Now, there's obviously a lot more that I could say, but I just wanted to highlight each of these three main points that the task of the overseer is to feed the church, is to guard the church, and is to equip the church. So if that's the task, why is this a noble task? Why is this not just another run-of-the-mill task? Well, let me suggest that there's two reasons, and those two reasons are based on who Jesus is and who you are as the church. That's why it's noble, because it's based on who Jesus is and who you are as the church. Here's what I mean. In our gospel reading, Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd. Identifies himself as the good shepherd. Now, there's lots of Greek words that can be translated as good, but this specific word that Jesus applies to himself is this word, word kalon, and it's significant because it's the exact same word that Paul uses when he says that the task of an overseer is noble. It's the exact same word that Jesus applies to himself as being the good shepherd. We could say that Jesus is the noble shepherd. Right? This word is, mean, doesn't mean just good, but it means the absolute best. There's nothing better than it. It has an inherent worth and an inherent value. Another biblical scholar has argued that this particular Greek word could also mean the word model. It could mean the word model. It's the best, and everything else is based off of it and measured against it to see if it lives up to the standard. 
So the fact that being so, so the fact that being an overseer is a noble task means that it's always measured against the standard of Christ. That's a scary thought. That's a very scary thought. And it's not just for accountability's sake, although that's important. But ultimately, it's a scary thought because of all that the task entails. In John 10, Jesus says that he's the good shepherd who does what? He lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. That's high calling to be measured against. Now, the good shepherd lays down his life, and when he does, salvation is brought to you. When an overseer lays down his life for the church, it's for the sake of your flourishing, so that you can be discipled, and so that you can be be raised up, and you can grow up to maturity in the faith. The task is noble because an overseer submits his life to the noble shepherd and participates in the ongoing work of Christ who is actively building his church. So that's one reason why it's noble, because of who Jesus is. The second reason why it's noble is because of who you are as the church. Now, throughout Scripture, there are lots of ways that the church is identified. The church is called the body of Christ. The church is called the bride of Christ. The church is called the temple of the Holy Spirit. These are all noble identifications and and, uh, noble ways, uh, descriptions of our identity. But for our purpose today, I want to draw your attention to 1 Peter 2.9. That's a verse that we know really well. And in it, Peter describes the church as a royal priesthood. You are a royal priesthood. Sometimes it's it's easy to forget that we're all priests, that we're all part of the royal priesthood. A friend of mine, a man by the name of Thomas McKenzie, who is an Anglican priest in, in Nashville, Tennessee, he wrote a book called The Anglican Way. It's a book that many of you guys have, have read. Well, in it, he's, he talks about the role of a pastor or a role of a priest and what a priest is, and he acknowledges that that language can sometimes bother us as Protestants. And he says this, he goes, well, maybe the language of priest bothers you. But the thing that should baffle you and bother you is not that I'm a priest. The thing that should baffle you and bother you is that you don't know or remember that you are a priest. That you are a priest. If you are part of the body of Christ, you are part of the royal priesthood. I love how strikingly he says that. Because it really is easy to forget that part of our identity. What does a priest do? Well, one of the ways that we describe the, the work of a priest is a priest is someone who represents the world to God and at the same time represents God to the world. A priest is someone who goes out and calls everyone who is call, calling everyone who is not worshiping God to come and to worship God, to come before a holy and a loving God. That's why Christ is our high priest. It's one of the reasons why Christ is our our high priest, because he opens the way to God. And those of us who are part of his body, part of the royal priesthood, we participate in that ongoing ministry. 1 Peter 2.9 will continue and says, says it this way. It says, You are a royal priesthood so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. That's your task as a priest. 
Now, there are those of us who have been set aside as priests and as overseers within the larger priesthood, but we've been set aside to strengthen you for your priestly ministry. And you are strengthened as you are fed by the word of God and as you are guarded from division and false teaching and as you are equipped equipped for ministry and built up as the body of Christ. Do you see now why it's a noble task? See now why this is a high calling. This is a noble task. Well, as we close, maybe we can now answer this third and final question. Why is this a trustworthy saying? Why is this a saying that guides us, that corrects us, and that encourages us? I want to suggest to you that this is a trustworthy saying because it calls us back to the reality of what Christ has called us to do. In the midst of ministry, whatever ministry you might find yourself in, Ministry can be discouraging, it can be difficult, it can be mundane. And there are times we need to be reminded of of what Christ has called us to do and who we are serving, that ultimately we are serving Christ and those whom Christ loves. Now again, I want to emphasize, particularly in this sermon today, that these five trustworthy statements are not just for pastors only. Now, obviously, they're for pastors, but not for pastors only, that the truth of these trustworthy statements are for the whole church. And so what I want to suggest to you is that whatever ministry you find yourself in, whether it's ordained ministry, whether it's music ministry, whether it's children's ministry, whether it's women's ministry, or you're a pastorate leader on vestry search committee, so on and so forth, that if you have any area of oversight in the bu- that serves the building up of the church, this saying will cause you to remember that your task is a noble task also. Because ultimately, you are serving the noble shepherd. Whether your ministry is difficult or mundane, it's noble because it builds up the body of Christ, the very, one who, very ones whom Christ died for and the very ones whom Jesus loves. Jesus asks Peter, he says, Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. I think he asks the same thing of us. Vestry members, pastorate leaders, women's ministry leaders, so on and so forth. Do you love me? Then feed my sheep, because it's a noble task. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.